0: Well, what a glorious time of year this is. And I think in amidst all of the festivities, not only that last week but this week we asked the question, who was that baby that was born? Who was that baby that was born and laid in a manger? Well, the Bible tells us some things that are very true. Of the Savior in Isaiah, I think you remember in seven fourteen it said the Lord Himself will give you a sign, and here it is: behold, it says the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, Matthew records for us his name in Matthew's gospel that Emmanuel means none other than God with us. And so that baby that was born to a virgin was none other than God with us, God in the flesh. We describe that theologically as the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born. The Bible says there that a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and so forth. And so in Isaiah 9, 6, he is both wonderfully, both God and man. It tells us in the book of Micah, in Micah 5, 2, writing centuries before his birth, But you, O Bethlehem. Ep-rathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is a ruler in Israel. Everla- and then it says there, it says, whose coming is from old, from ancient days. In fact, in the NASB, it says from everlasting. And we know from Matthew that it tells us that prophecy In Micah 5.2 is none other than Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. For our time this morning, I want to just direct our thoughts just to one passage that reveals in very clear terms exactly who that baby is. I want you to take that Bible and open to the book of Hebrews Hebrews chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible under the seats. I think it's every third seat we have a, a Bible under that seat. If you have not known that, if you did not bring one this morning, you're welcome to look for that and to follow along with us. As you're turning to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews exalts the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews reveals Jesus Christ throughout the book to be superior to all. In fact, the writer, who is unnamed, introduces us to the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. Let me read, you follow along, just those opening three verses in Hebrews chapter 1. That's our text this morning. Long ago... In one one at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by a Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down. ...at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then it continues there in verse 4 and it goes down. But that opening statement in 1, 1 through 4 actually... ...is what some would call the, one of the greatest sentences in the entire Greek language. It is in the Greek at least a single sentence that sets forth the sun's greatness and some would call it a literary masterpiece i I don't like to use that word as though it's just a piece of literature. It is, of course, a, a text that we have in Scripture, but it is wonderfully done. I would probably say that even beyond what we can read in English, it is so far even surpassing in the original language that there's quite nothing like it in all of Scripture, though all of Scripture is certainly breathed out by God. One of the things that you're going to notice just as we open to Hebrews and read those opening statements... ...is that the writer gets right after it, right out of the gate, doesn't he? There's no salutation here. There's no grace. There's no peace. There's no mercy, though it's in the text. But it's different than what you would come to read in the other New Testament epistles. The writer declares from the mountaintops this. The surpassing greatness... ...of Jesus Christ. Let's dive right into the text as we introduce our theme. It says there in 1-1... ...long ago at many times and in many ways... ...God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Those opening four verses... ...they find it crystallized, if you will. They rest upon just one verb. That's key when you're teaching the Bible. And that verb is the fact that God has spoken... And then they really rest in the language just on one subject and the subject is God. So that all that you read here in these opening verses, the theme that emerges, the lead verb is that he spoke and the lead subject is God. And I think you just have to stop there just for a moment when it said that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets because we have a God. Just as we come into this Christmas season, who speaks, who talks, that far from being a God removed, he, God, has spoken. He has made himself known to us. I mean, this is the testimony of scripture that he's disclosed himself to us. That you, as you come in on this Sunday morning on December 23rd, have and know a speaking God. I think sometimes we refer to it, obviously, as the Word of God. But you have, and you hold, and you know, it's hard to even say it humanly speaking, your God speaks. Your God talks. He talks to the prophets. He talks to you. In fact, we'd probably best say it this way, that he has spoken. That scripture, this God-breathed book, is the spoken word of the living God. Now here what the writer is telling you is that God spoke through the... It says, through the fathers. And the idea here is that he spoke through, we might call them the fathers, the patriarchs. It's the ideal of the the ancestors, if you will. He spoke, if you recognize and look back, to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Moses, and to a host of others. It's really a who's who in biblical history, isn't it? But he spoke to the fathers, look what it says there in 1: one, by the prophets. And he spoke here in many times and in many ways. And really what the writer is saying is that God revealed himself through many different ways, through many different, ...methods, if you will. He spoke to these prophets in dreams. He obviously spoke to them in prophecy. He spoke to them in visions. He spoke to them in parables. He spoke to them in poetry. He spoke to them in signs. He spoke to them in symbols. He spoke to them in miracle and miracles. And so the scripture comes to us with varied styles... ...and different literary forms. Sometimes he even, in the case of Moses... ...spoke face to face... But he's spoken many times and he's spoken many ways. And so we have history, we have law, we have prophecy. But, beloved, be sure, be sobered by even this thought as you go from here. All of it is God speaking to the fathers through the prophets. And the prophets there, of course, is plural. Plural. And he spoke to them over 1,800 years. He spoke to them in 40 different authors. He spoke to them through 39 different books. He spoke to them through major prophets. He spoke to them through minor prophets. And all of it was revelation being progressively revealed in his word. He spoke to Elijah. He spoke to Isaiah. He spoke to Jeremiah. It's an impressive list. But the writer wants you to see verse 2. Look at it. It's the lead thought here. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the whole emphasis of the text falls on the son. And the writer is pointing to the revelation that is unique the revelation that is final, the revelation that is complete in the Son. And you'll note there, just as we read it, if you look down in verse 2, he's not just spoken to the fathers by way of the prophets, but in these last days, verse 2, he has spoken to, I love that phrase, to us. He's spoken to you, Grace Church of the Valley, If you're visiting, even this morning, he's spoken to you. We have a God, I can't say it enough, who talks. I think everybody today seems to be looking for more revelation, needs to be looking for an experience. But listen, we have a God who has already spoken to the prophets. And we have a God now who has spoken in its final form in his son. And the emphasis of the text is this. When the son came there was no further revelation that is needed. In other words, he's moving from the old to the new... from the old covenant to the new covenant... and the shadows, if you will, of progressive revelation... is replaced now by the substance. And the substance is the sun. Of course, the Old Testament is not inferior... but the point would be is that as you come into the new... everything from the old is pointing to the new progressively, and it points to the coming of the Messiah. It points to the work of the Messiah. In fact, it points to the death and the resurrection of Messiah. I think I have a scripture here. I'll bring it up on the screen. It's in Peter, and I I want you to see this and walk with me. You can write it down. It says, concerning this salvation, this is the apostle Peter, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person of time the Spirit of Christ was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, obviously, they're writing prophecy centuries in the past and looking to the present of Christ. But in the things which, that, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, By the Holy Spirit from heaven, things unto which the angels long to look. So these prophets were serving you. They were pointing, if you will, to the very Son of God. I find it amazing, do you not, that last statement? Things unto which angels long to look. That is the angels, those ministers of ...Christ serving him before his glory day and night... ...we're longing to look into the prophetic word... ...that these prophets brought regarding the person of Christ. And so as you drop your eyes back now to Hebrews chapter 1... ...it's revealed in his Son... ...and the greatness of his Son is demonstrated... ...in a series of arguments that display his supremacy over every trial. So he puts argument after argument to display the greatness of his son and to reveal the supremacy over everything and everyone. And I just thought at this Christmas time I just want you to see Christ clearly. Who was that baby that was born? You know, if you just keep reading in Hebrews, one of the things that happened to the Hebrews, if you read the whole book, is they got distracted from their focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you have become distracted. Maybe you have become frightened. Maybe you have entered into trial. Maybe you have entered into temptation. Maybe you have entered into the death of someone this year, and you have, if you will, been pressured into serve other masters, other gods. And here's my prayer for every one of you young men, and every one of you moms, and every one of you fathers and singles, I pray that Colossians 1.18 would be true, that it says of the... ...exalted, resurrected, ascended Lord... ...that he might be preeminent in everything. So here, let me highlight five of those arguments... ...that display his supremacy over everything and everyone. They'll they'll come right out of the text. We'll move through them quickly. Number one, here's the first argument of his supremacy. Look at verse two. He has spoken to us by his son... ...whom he appointed... Did God the Father, the heir of all things? So here's the first argument by the writer is that he is supreme over all because of this fact that Jesus Christ, the one that was born, the one that we celebrate at Christmas, is the heir, it says there in the text, of all things. In other words, Jesus Christ, believe it, because this is what the scripture says. ...is the heir of all that God possesses. And certainly when we think of inheritance... ...the extent of one's inheritance... ...depends entirely on the wealth... ...and the power of one's father... ...and one's position. And Jesus Christ, as the Son of God... ...is the heir of all that God owns... Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is the heir of everything that God possesses. It says of all things, it means everything. The prophets, you understand what the writer saying, spoke for God. But beloved, this is the Son of God. This is the heir of all things. And certainly this inheritance is the full scope of his authority... Which the father gave to the son according to Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and 14. According to Matthew chapter 28 Jesus said all authority has been what? Given unto me. In fact he is the heir but look at the next chapter in chapter 2 of Hebrews in verse 8. It says that everything was put in subjection under his feet. But now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But the writer says this, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But beloved, we know that one day that will be the case. Everything that the father possesses, he grants unto the son. The son, as we'll see later, had to come into this world at the incarnation to die on our behalf. But he is the heir of all things. This is what it says in the book of Colossians in one sixteen. By him all things were created. Uh, it says there in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Here's the text. All things were created through him. And then the text says and for him. Everything that was created by God, Christ in that creation, he inherits all of it, all things, as nothing is excluded. I think you remember in the book of Romans, in Paul's masterpiece there to the church at Rome, in 1136, he said, for from him and through him, and then here's the key one, and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. Amen. In other words, his inheritance gives him rulership over all. And this is prophesied back in the book of Psalms in 2.8. I'm just highlighting a few of them. Where it says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the Bible says in Psalm 2.8, and the ends of the earth your possessions. In fact, just weeks back as I shared with you, I was in the land of Israel For just a few days and I was looking out over the the battle of Megiddo they call it. Or we call it the battle of Armageddon. It's where Elijah prayed and it did not rain. And then he prayed again and it didn't rain. And I was looking over a vast field that just your eye just goes for miles. We were there on a very clear day. And that's just in the land of Israel. And it says there in 2.8 the ends of the earth are your possession. Do you understand that? That baby who was born, that baby who was laid in the manger was none other than the son of God. Was none other than the the one who would gain access to all things and be given that authority. So here at least the Hebrew writer, the the writer of Hebrews is saying that baby born in Bethlehem is superior to every Old Testament prophet simply and profoundly because he inherits everything that the father possesses. I mean, really, just to you, for me at Christmas, it's unfathomable that the one who was born has all authority given unto him. And he is that heir because of his relationship as son with the father. And certainly within the theological framework, his heirship and his sonship, if you will, identify the son both as... Divine and co-equal with the Father. He's divine and co-equal. He's the heir of all things. Revelation, do you know that text? I think I'll read it for you that it comes up when it's that scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 5. Bring that up on the slide. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And and here's the phrase I really wanted to point you to. And he... Took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the land lamp, or excuse me, lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll. And to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people. It says for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You say why can he take it? I, I love that. I don't think he's wrestling it away from God Almighty. But it's, a, a, it's really picturesque of the son taking the scroll because he is the very heir of God. It's unbelievable that a Galilean carpenter who dies on a cross outside of Jerusalem is first the heir of all things. It's absolutely mind-boggling, but that's not all. Not only is the heir of all things, but secondly, look back in Hebrews 1 verse 2, he is the creator of the world. Look at verse 2. He's the creator of the world, it says whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also you can underline that --He created the world. I mean, this is a wonderful statement, to say the least, on his eternal preexistence, that though he was born, though he became flesh, the text says here that he created the world, this is his deity. And I think the thought here of the writer, some would say it should go opposite. And I never say that about the word. They said, wouldn't you rather say that he's the creator of the world and as the creator, he inherits all things. And I think, no, because that's not what the writer put. The writer put that he inherits all things because of his relationship to his father. But here, secondly, that by his creative power... He inherits what he himself created with the Father. In fact, this was the testimony of John, is it not? That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and then this phrase, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In fact, it says in the book of Colossians, in one sixteen that all things were created by him and for him. Beloved, listen, who was born on that day? Well, the heir of all things. But secondly here, the creator of all things. A.K. Morrison is a brilliant scientist. And he basically said that the conditions for life on planet Earth and the universe... Demand, he said, so many minute, involved circumstances, that that these circumstances must appear simultaneously in the same moment of time for any kind of life to appear. He said that it almost becomes beyond belief. And then he listed some statistics, and I'll share them with you. He said, consider the vastness of the universe. And he took the illustration, if you can bore a hole inside the sun. Now, that would be a big drill if you could bore that hole, okay? But he just, picturesque, if you could bore a hole in the sun, you could pour into that sun, if you bored a hole into it, 1.2 million earths would go inside the sun. And you'd still have room For 4.3 million moons to put around the edge. Unbelievable. In fact, the diameter of the sun, just the sun, is 385,000 miles. Okay? And it's how many miles away? 93 million miles away is the sun. But our nearest star Alpha Centauri is five times larger than the sun. Now, the moon's not as far away. It's only 211,000 miles away. And if you wanted to walk it, it would take about 27 years. Don't try that. Um, But a ray of light, I think we understand, travels at about 186,000 miles per what? Second. Okay, so just take a ray of light, it's traveling, if you will, 186,000 miles per second. So it would take a beam of light, would reach the moon in maybe just a little over one second. But if you could travel through space at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, you would reach Mercury in four minutes. Because from our Earth, it's 15 million miles away. Two minutes and 18 seconds later, you'd pass Venus 26 million miles away. In four minutes, 21 seconds, Mars would fly by because it's 34 million miles away. Next, you'd arrive, if you were traveling at that speed, to this place called Jupiter... Which is 367 million miles away. Jupiter is a giant planet with four moons and two big belts and a shiny vapor. And that would take you about 35 minutes at the speed of light. But then it begins to get beyond numbers. Saturn is twice as far. 790 million miles away. And it would take you one hour and 11 seconds to get there at the speed of light. Then you come to this this place called Uranus. It's 1,608,000,000 miles away. Then you come past Neptune to this place called Pluto. 2,668,000,000 miles away. And if you've got to that place called Pluto... You've only stepped off the front porch. You've just stepped off the front porch, okay? Because you haven't even gotten out of our tiny little infinite decimal solar system, which moves in a multi-million mile orbit through endless space. In fact, the nearest star is 10 times farther than the boundaries of our own solar system, which is 20 Billion miles away. There's this thing called the North Star, and the North Star is 400 billion miles away. It would take six years for light to get there, okay? 680 light years away. Then there's this star, have you heard of it? It's called Betelgeuse, okay? Betelgeuse, not spelled like you think it would be spelled, it's actually B E T. E-L-G-E-U-S-E. The best I can tell you is it's 880 quadrillion miles away and has the d- diameter of 200 million miles. In fact, the diameter of the star is greater than the Earth's orbit. So why would I tell you all that? I think to ask you this. Who made all of that? Who made all of that? Well, the Bible's clear here and many other places. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not the process of evolution. We are not in 15 billion years ago, one amoeba said to another amoeba, let's be two, and here we are. You are sitting on a ball called earth, careening through space, spinning so fast that you are... Seated in your seats. And God here says that the son created it all. Who is he? I'll tell you this. That baby that was born inherits all things. Creates all things. But that's not all. Would you look number three there in your text at verse three? This may be the most stunning of them all. He is, speaking of the son, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So we would say, third argument, that the Son's greater than everything and everyone and supreme over all. I'll just put it in this phrase that he's the radiance of God's glory. Now we've talked about that just a little bit. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean there? What does the writer mean? He is the radiance of the glory of God. Well, you remember, I think I just shared this a little bit a couple weeks ago. That God's glory, what is his glory? And we've spoken of this, and I had the wonderful privilege to do my dissertation on God's character, 250 pages with footnotes. It was a lot of work. But I studied that. What what is his glory? His glory is, I'm, I'm looking for a word and I can't find it, is all that God is. Because when you put all the attributes, all the perfections of God into who makes up God in his essence, in his being, he is, and, and this is why I'm looking for a word, the sum of it all, but God has nothing in some form, S-U-M. But when you put it all together, he's glorious. In fact, the reason you can't say sum is every attribute of his is his With everlasting reality. He is a God of everlasting love. He is a God of everlasting mercy. He is a God of grace. In other words, it knows no end because it's one of the perfections of God. But his glory then is his essence, is his being, is his character. But when he would reveal that glory in scripture, let's say the Old Testament. He revealed it by way of a glorious, radiant light. And you remember those places where they went into the temple and the priests couldn't stand to minister. They had to stop the work after both the tabernacle was built and after the temple was built because it said that the glory of God filled the place. In other words, they couldn't see. Because God's glory came in. It was called the Shekinah glory. And the Shekinah glory, what is it? It is a glory cloud. It followed Israel by day and a fire by night. What is that? It was a visible, physical manifestation that the presence of God was with his people. And so wherever his people went, that glory went. You can't see myself. He told Moses, you can't see me and live. So God would... Reveal himself in a radiant, bright light. It was a manifestation. You say, Scott, a manifestation of what? A manifestation of God. It was a visible manifestation. God was with his people. And so when he was with them, his presence went with them. Remember when Moses said, listen, if you don't go, I'm not going. And so God went with him. And remember when Moses prayed? You know that. Show me your what? Glory. What is he asking? He's asking God, I want to see you. I, wanna, I, I don't want to just know you, though I know you. I want to see a physical, visible presentation. And remember he put him in the cleft of the rock. And Exodus 34 says he let his glory pass by him. And what passed by him was a list in Exodus 34, 7 of the attributes of of God now you say come back to the text look at it he is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ the radiance of the glory of God Jesus Christ is the radiance is the brightness and there that word radiance speaks of a radiating light in other words Jesus is the radiance of the glory of very God The radiance is the light that streams forth, we might say, from the source, uh, from light source, from the sun. So no one can separate the nature of Christ from his Father. So here, wonderfully, the very presence of God is revealed in his, what? Son. This is not just a man. (laughs) This is not just a rabbi. This is not somebody who you just come to on Sunday morning, December 23rd. This is not somebody whom we sing cute little songs to, though that's cute. What's cute watching this morning is watching some of those kids' face, was it not? But beloved, listen, this is the inheritor of all things. This is the creator of all things. This is the very radiance of the brilliance of the glory of God. And so here, the very presence of God is revealed in his son. And the son of God, and I can only tell you this from the language, is not just reflecting back God's glory... We do that when we glorify him. He is, this is what the text is saying, God. And he radiates God's glory and his brightness because he, being the second person, is God. In fact, the writer said in John 1.14 that he was full of grace and truth. And it says there that we beheld his, what, glory. No wonder the angels cried out in antiphonal singing when they said, glory. To God in the highest. That son who came. That son who dwelt amongst us. Was full of grace. And he was full of glory. Fathers make sure you do something at Christmas. And I suppose that I'm probably preaching to you. But if you're a father. And you have children. I hope the presents don't fly before some worship be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? As exciting as that day is, as thrilling as that day is for children, tell them something. You say, but pastor, I don't have a dad in the home. Then you do it. But give this one homage. Bow your knee to this one. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of lords. He is the radiance of God's glory. But look at the next phrase. Still on point three. I just put it together. This is amazing. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Stop there just for a second. The imprint was used of an engraving in biblical times on wood. It was kind of a brand that they would put on an animal hide. It was a stamped image, if you will, that would go on a coin. And here, Jesus Christ is the exact imprint, look at the text again in verse 3, of his nature. And his nature, you understand, just speaks of his being. It speaks of the essence of God. The Son, beloved, is the exact imprint of his nature, the exact imprint of his being, the exact imprint of very God. Jesus, beloved, is co-equal with the Father in nature. Obviously, he's distinct in person. We'll pick that back up in John 14. But he is of the same essence and the same substance as God. This is what it says in the Bible. He is, Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God. Different word in the Greek. He is the image, it's the word that we get our English word icon from. He is the icon, he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, the invisible God becomes seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, this is not just one of the prophets, this is not just a great rabbi, this is not just a great teacher this is the Son of God. He is, Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.19 says, in Him, this is what the writer said, all the fullness dwells. In other words, the fullness of deity dwells in Him. Colossians 1.19, it says this in Colossians 2.9, that He is the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. This is the miracle of the incarnation. Who is he? He's the image, the icon of the invisible God. In him, in the person of Christ, fullness dwells. Listen, let me just stop here just for a second. I've been praying for you. If you're here today and you've not bowed your knee to this one, I just want to encourage you. I just want to plead with you that you need to bow your knee to this Lord Jesus Christ today. This is the radiance of God's glory. This is the exact imprint of his nature. It says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that the gospel and it's speaking of the glory of Christ who is, it says in 4.4, 4, the image, the icon of God. In other words, he's the exact representation of his nature. And in 4.6 it says God who said let light shine out of the darkness. Has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. Do you, do you want to know God? Then know his son. Certainly from our study in the gospel of John. Jesus said to the disciples. Whoever has seen me. Has seen who? The Father. Because when you see Christ, you're seeing the essence, you're seeing the exact representation, you're seeing, if you will, the the stamp of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the very imprint, He's the very stamp of God. What God is in essence and being, the Son is. They share the same imprint. Of being, So who is this person? Who was that baby? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He inherits all things. He made, made all things. He radiates the very character of God. But there's a fourth argument. Look at it in one, three. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And now this. <laughs> he upholds the universe... By the word of his power. Jesus is the sustainer of the world. He's the sustainer of the world. He upholds the universe. Now you think of that picture of Atlas holding the universe on his back. And it's it's really not a clear picture of the word. What, What it's saying here is that Jesus Christ is the sustainer of the universe... Here's the thought, but he carries all things, if you will. He brings all things to the desired end. In other words, he's not only created the world; he's sustaining and bringing and carrying this world to its desired end. And he does this by no, you know, fleshly work. He does it. It says there by his spoken word. And so, beloved, I just want you to know he utters a word and the whole universe is created and sustained by the power of Jesus Christ. He utters a word and everything listens in obedience to his voice except human beings. I mean, you would think, I'm just talking to you, you'd think this place would be to hear a word of the living God. He spoke it, and he came into existence. But he not not only spoke it into existence, you say, what do you mean he spoke it? Well, if you go back to in the book of Genesis, he said, let there be light, and there was what? Light. And, And what it means in the Hebrew is that as soon as he said out of his voice, let there be light, there was light soon as he said, let there be teams of water, there were teams of water. Let the mountains rise, the mountains rose. He spoke the world into existence, but here he not only speaks it into existence, he's sustaining it right now. He's sustaining it right now, and people don't give him glory. It's a major sin to rob him of glory. It's a major sin for you to stay passive all year and not give him glory with your life. You were made for this, and I just would not like preach at you. I beg you, consider what I'm saying. I don't care if you're in your 70s, your 80s, or you're 15 or 13 in junior high. He ought to have first place in your life. He gave you a heart that's beating millions of times every minute and every day to keep your heart moving your very breath is extended to you by the living God you families in here you fathers in here ought to give them first place love sports but make sure that this is a priority to get your kids in knowledge of this precious word you grandparents need to make sure and I and I know many of you are love them Honor him with those grandchildren. You know, the Bible says in Colossians that he's before all things. And here's the statement in Colossians. In him, all things hold together. Jesus Christ, if you will, is the super glue. (laughs) You, You know that the scientists don't have any answer for what's holding our universe together. You think they're smart. Some of you have read their books But the truth is, they don't know anything about creation. And the truth is, they don't have any scientific answer for what holds this universe together. And the Bible tells you that it's Jesus Christ. Listen, one said there's no scientist, no mathematicians, no astronomer, no physicist, if you will, could do anything without the upholding power of Jesus Christ. Do you realize, just listen as you sit here, that the laws of science, if they varied, you couldn't exist? So what do you mean? Well, listen, if the earth's rotation slowed down just a little bit, we would alternatively freeze or burn. If it just slowed down a little bit, the sun has a surface temperature of about 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And if it were any closer or further, we would ultimately freeze or burn. I mean, I just got thrown into existence 15 billion years ago. There was a red-hot explosion in space. I don't think so, (laughs) okay? Our globe, did you know this, is tilted at an exact angle? Some of you know this. About 23 degrees, which enables our universe to have four seasons. If it weren't tilted like that, vapors from the ocean floor would move north and south and pile up monstrous continents of ice. Did you know if the moon did not remain in its exact distance from the earth, the ocean tide would inundate the land completely twice a day, and after the first one, I don't think you'd care about the second one. How how, how do you explain this, Jesus? If the ocean floor slipped a few feet deeper into the ocean than it is, the carbon dioxide and the oxygen in the earth's atmosphere would be completely absorbed and no vegetable life would exist on earth. Listen, beloved, if the atmosphere did not remain constant but thinned out, many of the meteors which now are harmlessly burned up when they hit our atmosphere would constantly bombard us all. How do you explain that, Jesus? He's the sustainer of the world. And you've got something more important in your life going on. You've got a relationship more important than him. You've got financial issues more important than him. Listen, I just, I just want to encourage you. This is who he is. Atheist, you probably know his name. Stephen Hawking, before his death, said the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. Listen, we know that theory. It's not a theory. It's reality. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, that baby born on Christmas Day is Jesus Christ, the sustainer of the world. And I'm going to say it to you once. I'm going to say it to you again. You need to bow in submission to the king that was born. Amen? I mean, what, what, what's more important than this? But listen, is there one more? There is. There is he's in the air. He's the creator. He's the exact representation of his nature. He's the sustainer of all things. And he's the substitute for our sin. I'll be brief here. It just says, after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What do I, what do I need to say other than to read it again to you? After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God on high. It's unbelievable to me. That the heir of the world, the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the sustainer of the world, the very radiance of the glory of God, the exact print of his nature died in your place. Unbelievable. That born this day, we read it this morning, that a savior was born. And after his work was done on earth, he sat down. At the right hand, there's so many passages that speak of the right hand of God. Now, you know that God doesn't have a right hand because he's spirit. I know that. You know that. So he's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking symbolically here. It's just enough to say profoundly to you that after he died on the cross and made purification unbelievable for you, this one, the one who dwelt in unapproachable glory, the one who's the radiance of the glory of God, the second person of the Trinity, though he came in time, born under the seed of a woman, born in the flesh, born in the incarnation, he was the evermore, the second person of the Trinity, and he died in your place, and he sat down because he didn't have to go back into the Holy of Holies every year. He went in once and he offered, the Bible says, Himself for you. So he listened. Here's five arguments that display his supremacy over every rival. Here's the point. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the world. He's the radiance of God. He's the sustainer of the world. He's the substitute for sin. He is, Colossians says in 1.18, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Is he preeminent in your life? I just have to pray every time I'm in my study. I'm like, wow. I I just know that a man didn't write this book. You're coming. You know God face to face. He's spoken to you. He's given his son. The greatest revelation ever given in the last days was spoken to us by his son. Certainly by his work. Certainly here by his death and resurrection. And I do say this to you as I prayed. One day. Every knee shall, what? Bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, you bow now or you bow later, but you will bow. Every knee, every tongue. You bow now or you bow later. You say, well, Scott, what what does that mean? Well, when I saw this picture of Christ, I got down on my knees In my bedroom at 14, and I confessed him as my Lord and Savior. Where else could I do? I knew I was a sinner, and I needed his grace. We have a great God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.